Uh, This is from Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and lied him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find him wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all of the things they had heard and seen, which were exactly as they had been told. Now, what I'd like to do, though, is invite the kids up, because we don't have kids' church this morning. I'm going to share a special children's message with you. So, if you guys, anybody 12 and under, uh, like literally 12 and under, or if you want to just, you know, be a kid in spirit and come sit up the front, um, I'll invite you to do that. Come on now, I need a few helpers this morning. Can you guys come up? Pascal, come on. Pascaline, Ainsley, come on. I got one kid in spirit here. I'll take a few more of those. All right, come on now. We need a few more. They're coming. I got a special message for you guys this morning. Pascal went to go get his friend Junior, I think. All right. One moment. While I pull out my notes here. So, I got a question for you guys this morning. Are you ready for this? This is a little pop quiz. Do any of you ever get called princess by your parents? (laughs) Yeah, some of you? Raise your hand if you get called princess by your parents sometimes. I don't call you princess that often, but maybe every now and then. How about you boys? Any of you boys ever get called prince by your parents? No? Junior? No? 
Okay. Well, I guess this applies more to the ladies than the boys. But um, here's my question for you. What makes you a prince or a princess? What makes you a prince or a princess? What do you think? You got an idea? Ainsley? No? Anybody? Come on now. Who's got an idea? What, what do you think? Give me a little answer. Oh, I got Beth Ann back here raising her hand. What do you think? Pretty. Oh. Yeah, there's like a t-shirt, like a pink t-shirt that says pretty as a princess or something like that. I don't know. No, that's not the right answer. Uh, I think there are lots of ugly princes and princesses, don't you? Okay. But being kissed by a frog. No, that's not the right answer. Yes. Ah, you jumped right to the right answer. So you might think that it's um, this or that. Like, let me give you an example. Maybe... I have some props here this morning to make this extra fun. Uh, maybe you thought, even though nobody said it, that if you're wearing a crown, here, stand up, Ainsley. Let's show everybody what you got this morning. Woo, look at that. Does, does the tiara, the crown, does that make you a princess? No. Why not? It's just a crown, right? Well, it's actually a pretend crown. It's only plastic, she says. Yep. She's a smart one, Shane. She's a smart one. Okay, boys, come on up here. Uh, which Junior, come on up here. How about this? You know what this is? Turn this way. Face the audience. Actors and actresses always have to face the audience. Come on now. Okay. That's, that's a pretend robe. How's that feel? Bad. Bad. Isn't it special? It's shiny. It's royal. It looks, looks good on you. Now, does, does wearing a robe make you a prince? No. Good answer. That's right. It doesn't. But it's fun. It's fun to pretend to be a prince or princess by wearing a crown or a robe. But Junior's dad got the right answer. You know what makes you a prince or a princess for real is not what you're wearing or how you look. It's, it's in the blood. It's in the blood. You know what that means? What I mean by that is you have to be born into the family of a king or queen. That's how it works. So you can't literally be called a prince or a princess unless you have a parent or a grandparent who is a king or a queen. Those are the true princes and princesses. So when your parents call you princess, it's just a, it's a nice nickname because they want to say, you're beautiful, I love you, you're special. Um, there's lots of good things that are implied with that title, with that nickname. But what really makes someone a prince or princess is that they're born into the family of a king or a queen. Let me give you an example. Anybody ever been to England? 
Any, anybody else out there ever been to England? All right. We've got a picture for you here. If you'd go ahead and put this up. This is, this is the line to the throne. If you lived in England, do you think you could become king or queen of England if you lived there? No, you can't. You have to be born into the right family. So right now, the queen, since 1952, is Queen Elizabeth. And then the first in line to the throne is Prince Charles. Uh, her, she's Queen Elizabeth's oldest son. That's always the first in line to the throne is the oldest son. And then uh, after Prince Charles, the second in line to the throne is his oldest son, known as Prince William. Okay? And then Prince William has three kids that are in line to the throne after him. Uh, the oldest one, third in line, is Prince George, born in 2013, so he's only five years old. And then Princess Charlotte, born in 2015. And then the latest edition, just this year, born in April, is Prince Louis Arthur Charles, born on April 23rd of 2018. So... Um, and then you get all the way through uh, Prince William's children, and the next one in line, the sixth one, would be Prince Harry, who's the younger brother of Prince William. So that's kind of how it works in England, just to give you an example. So all of those people in that line are princes or princesses because they are born into the family of a king or queen, and they are in line to the throne. They could become Prince or princess. Thank you, Elliot. You can take that down. So here's what I want you to know this morning. How does all this connect with Jesus? Why am I talking about the, the throne of England? Really, what we're here for is to talk about Jesus, right? And I want you to remember this morning that Jesus was given a title that we're going to talk about in just a minute. The title is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, right. So what does it mean to recognize Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Well, really, I think it's fair to say now, in hindsight, that he's actually become the King of Peace. But at the time when Isaiah prophesied that title, 700 years before Jesus was born, he was the Prince of Peace who would become the King of Peace. And so I just want you to think about that. Think about what it means for Jesus to be identified as prince. It means he was in line to the throne. It means that he was going to become the king of, not of England, of God's kingdom. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, we say now. And so it's really significant that we understand these titles and what they mean for us. What they really mean is that the kingdom of God is present in each one of our lives when we recognize who Jesus is and when we honor him as our king. So thanks for coming up to help me out with this little lesson. I hope that's a helpful introduction to you about the term prince and princess and what it really means. All right, you guys can go back to your seats. Thanks. All right. Well, this morning as we conclude our study through the four titles given to Jesus in Isaiah's prophecy, uh, 
we've come to the last one, the final one of the four, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And uh, let me just begin with this most basic of all insights this morning as we think about the significance of this title that Isaiah gave to the coming Lord. I want you to think with me about the fact that the birth of Jesus was heralded by angels as the arrival of the Prince of Peace that Isaiah had prophesied about. So get this order of events in your mind this morning. 700 years before it happens, Isaiah makes this prophecy. He's inspired by the Spirit of God to speak these words that we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. And these titles are given to the coming Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one who was to come 700 years before his birth. Now, have you ever considered before the historic significance of how the birth of a new prince is meant to be announced? Anybody ever thought about that? Probably not, because we live in a nation where we don't really have a king or queen anymore. You know, going back to the Revolutionary War, we broke company with England because the king had too much power. And I don't want to get into all the history of that, but it's a fascinating study if you're interested. And really, the fundamental reason why we fought for our independence from England is because we felt that the king had too much power and there was not enough freedom uh, for the people. Freedom of religion and other types of freedom uh, were, were squelched by the power of the king. And so... Some folks rebelled against that, particularly the colonists that had come here uh, for more freedom. They didn't like the fact that they were being taxed without having any voice in their own government. And thus, you know, the Revolutionary War was uh, our fight for independence from the kingdom of England. And once we gained that independence, there's no going back. There's no king in America. There's no king or queen in this nation. But think about this with me. Think about how the birth of a prince is meant to be announced. And I'll give you an example here, an illustration, because you just saw on the line to the throne diagram that I showed you that there was a new baby prince born in April of this year. April 23rd of 2018 brought the birth of Prince Louis Arthur Charles, born, of course, to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, also known as Prince William, and his wife, Kate Middleton. Some people are really into royal watching, and probably not you. I wouldn't presume that of of you, but some people are really into this kind of thing. So how did they announce the birth of their baby? Anybody know? Was anybody tuned into that? Well, this baby, as I said, is now officially fifth in line to inherit the throne of England behind his grandfather, Prince Charles, his father, Prince William, and his brother and sister, Prince George and Princess Charlotte. And uh, I want to just play a fun little video clip for you here that shows you how the birth of Prince Louis Arthur Charles was announced to the world. Check this out.
All right, there you have it. Isn't that fun? Wouldn't you like, you know, the birth of your own children to be announced like that? The town crier comes out in full costume and lets the world know a baby has been born. Well, if that kind of royal family welcome and announcement is fitting for the prince of England then what do you suppose the birth of Isaiah's Prince of Peace might call for? What kind of announcement would be appropriate for the Prince of God's kingdom? What I want to do first and foremost with you this morning is to connect for you the two passages of Scripture that we just listened to a few moments ago, the first from Isaiah 9 and the second from Luke chapter 2. Maybe you noticed the connection as you were listening, or maybe not. Maybe it seemed vague. Maybe it seemed loose, maybe unspecific. But it's a connection that's meant to be crystal clear in our minds. So pay close attention. Listen closely and look for the connection here. Let me read for you once again Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 specifically, and then invite you to listen for the overlap of themes that appears again in Luke 1 and Luke 2. Are you ready? So here's what Isaiah says about the child that is to be born. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right, now, so think of this, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Think of it as a birth announcement in advance before the baby arrives. Anybody here ever um, had a reveal party? For their baby that was yet to come, or been to a reveal party of a friend. This is the thing now, you know. It's like the thing these days. So, you know, people get pregnant. They're, uh, ideally, they're married first, and then they get pregnant, and, and they decide we're going to have a, a special party to reveal the sex of the baby and maybe even the name of the baby before the baby ever arrives. So there's like an announcement and a celebration before the baby ever shows up. Now, some, not everybody does that. Some people just wait until after the baby's born, and then they send a little birth announcement. Who's ever received one of those? A little card in the mail saying, we had a baby. Here's the, you know, here are all the specifics, this big, this long, this, you know, this heavy. Here's the name, born on such and such a date. Isn't it great? And, you know, we've all received these announcements of the birth that come after the fact, once the baby's been born. So what I'm saying is, think of Isaiah's words as a birth announcement in advance, before the child arrives. In this case, I suggest to you that God anointed the prophet Isaiah to say these words because he wanted to announce to his people, the people of God, the birth of this baby that would truly change history. 
The birth of this baby that would take over the throne of David. The birth of this baby that would become the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God wanted to announce that far in advance, in fact, 700 years in advance, so that people, his people, would have lots of time to look forward to the coming of that baby. That's how significant the birth of Jesus is in the sight of God. But here's the really cool thing. Just before the baby was finally born, God sent angels to announce it again. In fact, he sent them specifically, both just before the, uh, the baby was born and just after the baby was born, so that they could confirm specifically that this baby, baby Jesus, was the Prince of Peace that they had been waiting for all that time, 700 years. Listen for the connection in these words. First, the angelic message that was given to Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, 26 to 33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He, now listen closely, here's the connection point. Here's where I want you to hear the echoes of Isaiah 9. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. Do you hear it? You hear the echoes of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 there in that announcement? The fulfillment of the prophecy is finally taking place. And the angels have come to declare on God's behalf, this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. This is the the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, listen closely again for the same echo in the words of the angels who announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds after it took place. Luke 2, verses 10 to 14. We just heard these words recited by Kyria and Sophia. The angel appears to the shepherds. I won't read all the prelude to the story there. The angel says to them, verse 10 and following, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, listen closely, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, 
peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. So here again, what I want you to see and hear is the direct connection, the link between these passages. From Luke 1 and 2 all the way back to Isaiah 9, there is a direct connection. In fact, three things that that you could take note of here in this passage from Luke chapter 2. First, the baby Jesus was to be born in the town of David. Exactly what Isaiah had spoken of, that he would assume the throne of David, right? The town of David, of course, is Bethlehem. Why is it the town of David? Because it was David's hometown. It's where David grew up. It's where David was shepherding the flocks when he was anointed king by Samuel. So Bethlehem is the town of David because it's where David grew up, where David came from before he became king of Israel. It's significant that Jesus would be born there. Then, secondarily, uh, the angel declares that Jesus is to be the Messiah. That's a title, another title that means the anointed one. Anointed for what? What do you need to be anointed for? Anointed to be king. The anointed one, the Messiah, and the Lord. Another royal title. Another, you know, did you know that the emperor of Rome was referred to as Lord? Commonly referred to as Lord. But Jesus came as the true ruler over the kingdom of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So the third thing then, those are two quick ones. The third one is that the angels then give glory not to the parents, not to Mary and Joseph. They're not like, way to go, you did it, you had a baby. You know, it's not like they're bringing um, gifts to, you know, uh, to, to Mary and Joseph. No, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests, right? What did we read about in Isaiah chapter 9? What's the title given to Jesus? Prince of Peace, the last of the four. And what's going to characterize his rule, his governing of the kingdom of God? His authority will continue to grow. His governance will continue to grow. And his, of his peace, there will be no end. So again, there's a direct connection here between what we find in Luke 1 and 2 being announced by the angels and what we have been studying all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, in addition to what's actually said about Jesus, I want to highlight one other fun little fact here that I think you'll find insightful. Notice that these angelic appearances are are significant in and of themselves, right? It's not a town crier that shows up to make the announcement. It's not just a prophet that shows up to make the announcement. It's not the parents making the announcement. Who is it? It's it's the herald angels. The herald angels show up to make these announcements. Now, who knows what a herald angel is? Come on now. Let me help help you out here with um, a little insight from Peanuts. Here's a comic strip that I think you'll appreciate. Is it there? Yeah, all right. Guess what, Charlie Brown, Lucy says, I've been asked to be in the Christmas play. I'm going to be an angel. All I have to say is, 
Hark. Snoopy says, well, I'm glad they didn't ask me. I would have said, bark. This is what I have to do in the Christmas play. When the sheep are through dancing, I come out and say, hark. Then, Harold Angel starts to sing. Harold Angel? Yeah, it's right here in the script. I, I don't know. I, I didn't see the rest of the play. As soon as um, Sally came out and said, hockey stick, and everyone laughed, I left. You see, when she came out, actually in the play, they're skipping a little bit here, uh, she, she was meant to say hark, and instead, by accident, she said hockey stick. So Charlie Brown's embarrassed by this. Now he's talking on the phone, recalling the situation to someone. And then she sa- he says, commenting about Lucy, she gets everything mixed up. She even thought someone named Harold Angel was going to sing. Excuse me, somebody's at the door. Hello, is Sally home? My name is Harold Angel. There he is, making his cameo appearance, Harold Angel. So, you know, in spite of this special guest appearance at the end of the comic strip by Harold Angel, uh, what I want you to know and, and recognize that Harold as we use it in the song we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Herald is not a name. It's H-E-R-A-L-D, not H-A-R-O-L-D. And Herald literally means unofficial messenger sent by God or sent by a king with a royal announcement. So to say that these angels are heralds is to acknowledge that they are sent by the king to make a royal announcement. In the now famous words of Linus, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. This royal announcement that was made by the angels confirms that the baby born to Mary and Joseph is really the Messiah, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, who was to come. So that's uh, a bit of background, a bit of history, a bit of comedy all tied up into one. But what does it have to do with us? I mean, how does all this apply to us? And what's the takeaway? What are the lessons for us that we can apply to our own lives here and now, 2,000 years after the fact? Well, let me take you here to a secondary insight. Because... Frankly, I think we need a Prince of Peace. Don't you? Anybody need a Prince of Peace in their life? You see, the sad fact is we live in a time when peace is growing in value because trouble is on the rise all around us. True? Not a happy truth, but true nevertheless. We live in a time when peace is of growing value because trouble is on the rise all around us. Have you noticed? Fast forward 2,000 years from the angelic announcement 
And where do we find ourselves? Has the world, you know, like solved all of its problems and, and gotten a whole lot better than it used to be? No. We live in a broken, troubled world where, honestly, peace seems hard to come by, doesn't it? Are you with me here? We find ourselves living in a time when the world seems to be falling apart all around us. It's not getting its act together. It's falling apart. It seems sometimes even, and I don't mean to say this is true, but it just looks this way if you're concerned with outward appearances. It looks like the Prince of Peace, who's now become the King of Kings, is not really getting his job done very well. Turn to your neighbor and say, looks can be deceiving. Are you with me? Come on, looks can be deceiving. Friends, here's, here's what we need to mer- where we need to merge our reflections on the first coming of Jesus with an increased awareness of his second coming. You see, the term Advent, the concept of Advent, applies to both, the first coming and the second coming. The first coming of Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. It brought the kingdom of God to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. But the second coming of Jesus will fulfill the presence of the kingdom on earth. So what we say about the kingdom is that it's here already, but it's not yet here entirely. It's not yet here in its fullness. And that won't happen until Jesus comes back. So at his second coming then, the kingdom of Jesus will overtake all opposition. Every kingdom that opposes the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, every kingdom of darkness, every power of darkness will be overthrown when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, best of all, the peace that he's meant to bring will actually reign supreme and cover the entire earth. How's that for something to look forward to? But unfortunately, the trouble is we're not there yet, are we? Last I checked, he hasn't arrived back again. So in the meantime, the value of peace is rising. The need for peace is rising because the prominence of trouble is rising. It's both at the same time. I heard a friend of mine recently put it this way. He said, as the darkness around us grows darker, at the same time, the light of Christ within us also glows brighter. Isn't that beautiful? So you shouldn't expect necessarily that the light of Christ is going to be evident in the world around you Actually, the world around you is growing darker, but the light of Christ within you is shining brighter because of the darkness around you. Is there any doubt? Is there any doubt that trouble around, around us is on the rise? Not on the decline? I mean, I wish it were the other way around, honestly. I think it's very discouraging to look around and, man, if you, if you read the news with any regularity, you'll know full well that the headlines are depressing. 
discouraging, full of darkness. Hello? Humanity is all about dancing the two-step. It's like, okay, we take one step forward and make some progress at something, and then, boom, we take one step backward and we're right back where we started. Things are not getting better. I mean, yeah, there's been some technological advancement and some things about life are maybe better than they were 50 or 100 years ago, but the human condition has not changed. We are not making any progress. Progress is a myth. You could have technological advancement, but that doesn't mean that the human condition is getting any better, does it? I mean, do you need proof? Anybody need proof? Here, let me just give you a little bit just just to make sure you're tracking with me here. Take a quick survey of the headline news from today and think about the darkness that it represents. This is just from today, today's headlines. Here are a few examples from around the world. Tsunami triggered by a volcano kills at least 222 in Indonesia. License to kill policing gets trial run in Rio de Janeiro. Women fleeing Venezuela sell hair, breast milk, and sex to get by. Al-Qaeda terror group returns to target airliners. Arrest of Chinese princess exposes regime's world domination plot. Russia warns of global conflict over nuclear pact collapse. Happy stuff, isn't it? Or from right here at home in the good old U.S. of A. FedEx workers caught looting Christmas packages. Revenge porn scandal rocks the Los Angeles Police Department. Stocks, this one's going to hit where it hurts. Worst week in a decade. What if the Dow fell another 4,000 points? What if? What if the Dow fell another 4,000 points? Would you still be at peace? There's a question. You get the idea here. Trouble is brewing all around us in the world, and we are not immune to its effects. I wish we were, but we're not. And the question is, why is all this happening? What's going on? What is going on? Let me answer that, because I think there's a clear warning in Scripture regarding the second coming of Jesus. You know what it is? Trouble will be on the rise. Trouble will rise to confront the church and the world like never before in human history. So don't expect things to all get better because some things are just going to keep getting worse. I know this is a gloomy thought for such a merry time of year, but here's the deal, right? My point is to inspire you to find peace from the lordship of Jesus Christ, and to be a peacemaker for Christ, not to expect it from the world around you. And beyond that, my point is also to get you thinking about how the first coming of Jesus really sets the stage for his second coming, which will be his return in glory, in power, in full authority. 
You know, last year, about this time, I attended a conference in Kansas City uh, called the One Thing Conference, hosted by the International House of Prayer Ministry, and it's led by a guy, uh, a great pastor and teacher named Mike Bickle. And one of the things that really, to be honest, shocked me that I learned at that conference a year ago was about the prevalence of this theme of the second coming in Scripture. It's honestly, it's a theme that I've kind of ignored now and then. I haven't really been all that interested in it. I haven't been compelled to study it in depth. Let me just share a brief quote from Mike Bickle's writings on this subject because this is an area of emphasis and an area of specialization that he's really dug into. He writes, The 89 chapters of the four Gospels give us a record of Jesus' heart and power at his first coming when he came to pay the price for our redemption. But likewise, 150 chapters in the Bible give us a record of Jesus' heart and power at his second coming when he comes to take over the earth. These 150 chapters reveal the same Jesus operating in the same Holy Spirit as recorded in the same Bible. Almost twice as many chapters of Scripture describe Jesus' second coming than his first coming. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? Twice as many chapters, over 150 compared to 89 in the four Gospels that are specifically about the first coming. An interesting sub-point uh, sub here is that only 32 of these chapters about the second coming in the New Testament are in the New Testament, which means that the vast majority are found actually in the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so let me give you just a quick example to tie together what I've just shared with all the trouble that we witness in the world around us. Here are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 14. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's a good question. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
What's Jesus saying? Trouble's brewing. Trouble's on the rise. It's not going away. But the essence of Jesus' good news message was that the kingdom of God is not threatened by the trouble. The rule of God is not threatened by the trouble brewing in the world. And the peace of God comes to God's people by recognizing the rule of Christ over the kingdom of God, which is present within us. So that leads me then to one one last insight I want to finish with just quickly this morning. If you want his peace to increase, don't be fooled by his rule. Now, I know it's, you know, a little clever and maybe uh, corny even to rhyme like this unless you're a bona fide rapper or a spoken word artist. I'm not either of those. I could try to rap this, but I don't think we want to go there. Uh, but, but hang with me here. I'm trying to make this a little bit more memorable for you, a little bit more catchy so that you'll think of it and remember it. If you want his peace to increase, don't be fooled by his rule. That probably could wrap all right, actually. It's got a little rhythm in my head. So what, what do I mean by the phrase, don't be fooled by his rule? What I mean is, don't presume that you'll see it reflected and respected in the world around you. Until Jesus comes again, the rule of Christ and the kingdom of God are more evident within us than they are around us. So listen to the words of Jesus himself on this, Luke 17, 20 and 21. Again, um, he's interacting with the Pharisees on this occasion, not with the disciples. And he says something very insightful about the nature of God's kingdom. On being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God will come, he doesn't answer with you know, any information about his second coming. What he says is, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or as some translations put it, within you. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, pair that with Paul's words in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. So the question is, are you thankful this morning for the peace of God ruling in your heart when everything around you seems to be falling apart? Can you still be thankful for peace even when the world is in trouble? Can you still experience peace? Can you hold on to it? Do you have it? Does it have you? Are you living with a deep sense of the peace of God over your life even though Trouble is all around. You know, I had uh, an incredible opportunity this, um, this weekend. Just yesterday, actually, we were in Grand Rapids for a family Christmas party. And we did something rather unusual. We put on a Christmas um, program at a retirement home. 
in Grand Rapids uh, with our extended family on my wife's side, uh, the Boer clan. And um, so before the program started, we had an opportunity to kind of mix and mingle with the residents. And man, it's a different world when you're uh, getting old and this is what you have to look forward to. And so the program starts at 3. Get this. People start showing up at 2.30. Can you imagine? I don't think you can because nobody's in here at, at 9.30 in the morning. So 2.30, they're rolling in in their wheelchairs. 2.30, half an hour before, rolling in in their wheelchairs and their walkers coming in to find a place to sit. And so uh, one guy comes in, and I, I'm watching him, and I think, oh, he looks pretty spry. I wonder how old he is. And he's got, like, running pants and running shoes on. I thought, oh, I should go talk to him. I, th- I think we could connect. You know, maybe, he, maybe he's a runner, or maybe he was a runner. He looks like one. He's slim, and he's got the, you know, got the garb on. And I go over, and I sit down next to him and introduce myself, and we start talking. And he introduces himself. His name's Maury Lehman. Maury Lehman, 95, spry years old. Doesn't need a walker, doesn't need a wheelchair. And just uh, a gleam in his eye. And it's obvious. This is a man of God. And so we start talking and getting to know each other a little bit. I ask him if he's a runner. He's oh, I used to run track when I was in high school. But I can't even remember that. It was so long ago. And uh, anyway, we go on. We're talking about this and that. And, and I say, well, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And, um, and he said, well, I'm a veteran of World War II. And he said, let me tell you a story. And then he starts to unpack for me this story. And he says, you know, when I came home from the war, I didn't want to keep anything except for one thing. I brought one souvenir home from the war. He says, it was my helmet. And then he says, I was an infantryman in Germany, flew in and dropped in um, 15 days after D-Day and fought my way through Germany with the American army. And he said, on one occasion, there was a, a mortar blast that went off about 30 yards away, knocked me over, and when I got up, I looked at my helmet, shook the dust off, looked at my helmet, and there was a piece of shrapnel one inch from the bottom of my helmet stuck in my helmet right here. A piece of shrapnel. If not for that helmet, Maury would not still be around to this day. And yet, as he talked with me about his life and his experience in World War II, he was, I mean, almost awkwardly at ease with it. I mean, you know how some veterans, they don't like to talk about this kind of thing. They don't want to go there. They don't want to remember. It's too painful, too difficult. Not Maury. Maury is at peace in his own skin and at peace with his own experiences in life and at peace with the hand of God over his life. And it was evident by the way he talked about this experience. I mean, he was joking about digging foxholes. So I got really good at digging foxholes. I mean, I'm like the best foxhole digger on the face of the earth, you know? Um, but, but what was obvious is that the peace that he had didn't come from the foxhole. It came from the presence of the Lord with him in the foxhole. So I ask you the question. I tell you the story to ask you a question. And the question is this. If you were caught on the front lines of a war, would you be able to keep your peace? 
if the Dow loses another 4,000 points? Will you be able to keep your peace? Will the peace of God mark and characterize your life? Is the Prince of Peace ruling in your heart or not? What is it that's robbing you of your peace? Friends, Jesus is the Prince of Peace to this day and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our time is about up, but I just want to close with with a quick quote or two from what Jesus said to his disciples before he left them. Listen to these words. John 14, the night before he goes to the cross, he says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives, so don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. John 16, two chapters later, repeats the same idea again for good measure. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And then Luke 24, after his crucifixion and resurrection, he appears to the disciples for the first time. And while they're still talking about the story of what happened on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom. Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they'd seen a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It's I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then he said to them in verse 44, just skipping down, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that brings us full circle, right back to Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Might not look that way, but don't be fooled. That is the promise of God. Let's close together. I want you to stand with me and just read, declare the truth of these prophetic words from Isaiah chapter 9. We spent four weeks thinking about this, looking at this, talking about this, reflecting on it, and I'd like for us to declare it together as we wind this up. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. This is a declaration. Read it with me. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, 
You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his greatness, of his government, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this.